everybody, this is Joel David Moore from sunny Los Angeles, California in the quarantine just like the rest of you. Uh, and I gotta let you know that uh, the rants from the Black Lodge podcast are reviewing my movie Hatchet. So, unless you want Victor Crowley to grind your face off with a gas-powered belt sander, you better download now. Now, I say that not knowing how they were gonna, gonna review this thing, and I cannot be held accountable for whatever they say about the movie or me, but I will say, check them out, check them out, check them out. We had a blast making this movie. Hatchet's one of my favorite movies I've ever made. Adam Green's one of my best buds. Um, so I hope that you enjoy it as much as we do. Stay safe out there, everybody. live from the Black Lodge. It's me, the free will burning head, turning ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcast and mouthpiece of the Southeast. Brandon A. Lane bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. In 1960, Alfred Hitchcock carved out a cinematic niche with the masterpiece of terror known as Psycho, inadvertently birthing the slasher genre in the process. Incrementally, the stakes and body counts were raised with 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween in 1978, and Friday the 13th in 1980. Now, throughout the next decade, Freddy, Jason, Pinhead, and Chucky would dominate the box office. But just as hair metal died in the 80s in the wake of grunge, the slasher genre would also see an untimely demise in the wake of the no-fun 90s. Fast forward to the mid-2000s and a new breed of genre filmmaker, whether Alfred Blood, and chief among them was Adam Green, whose film Hatchet served as the catalyst for another great wave of hard R, blood-soaked, TNA-filled, good old-fashioned, politically incorrect, God bless America slasher film. In quick succession... Victor Crowley has risen the ranks of horror villain infamy, but a slasher antagonist is only as good as his protagonist, which brings us to the gentleman you heard at the top of this episode, none other than the star of Hatchet himself, Joel David Moore. Forever in your debt, Joel, for taking time out of your busy schedule to do uh, an intro for this little nothing of a podcast. All the same, I want all of you out there in the Rant Army to give him a follow on Twitter at... Joel David Moore. Now, once you followed him, you got to do the same for us. The Rants from the Black Lodge podcast can be found on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, and of course, we're available on Pandora and on iHeartRadio as well. As always, don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com, and for the love of Cthulhu, please consider buying a t-shirt from our web store, at rantarmy.com. You know, it's July, it's hot outside, and it's about to get even hotter as we take a boat tour to Victor Crowley's murderous abode located deep within the swamps of Honey Island in the form of an in-depth analysis of Adam Green's murderous masterpiece, Hatchet. But first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. Hey, 
Hey, assholes! It's me, Bomber the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants for the Black Lodge podcast. Here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your children. Sell your blood. Go to the Jackoff Clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Want a t-shirt? Want a sticker or a mug to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, guess what? Go to Rant Army Surplus. The link is in the description. And if you don't buy something, then fuck ya! Horror has many faces and has gone by many names, but in the case of Adam Green's hatchet, horror answers to the name Victor Crowley. So buckle up, Rant Army, because tonight we head deep into the Honey Island Swamp in pursuit of one question. Has Victor Crowley earned his place in the pantheon of the horror titans that came before him? To help answer that question, I call upon the bacon-loving, beer-chugging, buffet-eating, sobriety-beating. Ain't nothing anonymous about this alcoholic. You know him, you love him, the barbarian of all things booze, Fat Tony! Woo! Zero days sober! All right, indeed, same for me, and we're going to be taking a shot in honor of... Uh, yeah, since the- we're recording this the day before Father's Day, and we traditionally have three shots before every recording, but we saved the third one. To do on the the podcast with y'all for my late great father Roger Meppard. To, to Roger. To Roger. Oh, that's some good stuff. Oh. And I, of course, am your host, Brandon A. Lane, and I'm raring to discuss the Bayou Butcher himself, Victor Crowley, and his introductory film, Hatchet. Fucking love this movie. Never heard of it before. I just randomly bought it. It was a treasure I found at Walmart because the tagline. Not a Japanese one, not a remake, a hundred percent old school American horror. And I'm like, well, that's fucking great. And just bought it. And luckily, it turned out to be one, probably my favorite slasher film of the new cent- new, new millennia. At least until Hatchet 2 rolled around. Yeah, and yeah. completely the- blew it out of the fucking water. But that's a tale for another day. Hatchet is a movie that has its roots in the love of the genre. And we're going to be deconstructing you know, whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. Uh, but let's just hit the ground running. Hatchet was released theatrically in a limited run September 7th, 2007. It had a DVD release December 8th, 2007. Its Blu-ray release was September 7th, 2010, and it was made on a budget of $1.5 million. Now, for a low-budget film, even today, low-budget, but it, like you were... For today, it's super low-budget, but you can... It still looks great. It looks professional. I mean, you ever... Again, I say this a lot about good movies. Every bit of the budget's on screen. It it absolutely (coughs) 100% is. And uh, we actually just discussed this in uh, one of the previous takes we did. Yeah, this is take number four, people. (laughs) That (coughs) you may not realize this, but a good deal of this film was shot during the daytime, and they actually color corrected it digitally to make it appear as if it were night. However, everything else, good old-fashioned flesh and blood special effects done the practical and American way. America. (laughs) Um, the the film did not gross uh, its budget back in its short theatrical run. It made $151,198, netting a loss of $1,348,802. However, not all was lost due to its home video release, which it grossed 
well, this is more more so a framework just to put it in perspective too. It sold five hundred and ninety thousand DVDs in North America, translating to roughly eight point five million dollars. So yeah, this led uh, an entire generation to rebirth, albeit not theatrically, at least initially. Yeah, that, but that's but, actually I was gonna say real quick. Like movies like this and the theatrical slasher and theatrical horror are no longer necessary anymore. With all the streaming services and DVD, most of the good shit never hits the theater. You know, you get rare exceptions like Hereditary, but good slasher movies, they're well, they're 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 always demonized by the critics and the MPAA, or it's now known the MPA because I guess it's just the Motion Picture Association rather than the Motion Picture Association of America because you can't say America anymore. America! <laughs> America! Um, but they've always been demonized. These films have been cut to shreds more so than the actual killers on screen. So, with the advent of the unrated cut going to you know VHS and DVD, Blu-ray, and beyond, you have an avenue to have an untainted product and really other than a couple of moments that are cut in the theatrical version of this movie um hatchet is balls to the fucking wall oh my god yeah that's so what, balls like, to the wall blew me away the first time seeing it now those five hundred and ninety thousand dvds translate to 8.5 million dollars in revenue um in a in a theatrical setting, that would be a fucking loss. But in terms of its budget, that's a huge success. And this took notice, and thus, Hatchet is a franchise now. We're four movies deep, and with a promise of a fifth, and probably so on and so forth. As long as they can keep them in that, that low-budget range, these movies are going to make money. Oh, yeah, every time. Every time. Um, the IMDb rating uh, it was a 5.7 out of 10. Oh, my God. That's... Um, for a slasher movie, a newer slasher movie, well, I, I kind of get it, but I would rank this movie a little higher. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 55%. That's right on the cusp of being fresh. Still think that's low. The audience score, 45%, which is even more Bunch bonkers. of pussies. So, yeah, there had to be a bunch of assholes watch this movie and, uh, and rate it so lowly. Uh, Metacritic, 57 uh, out of 100, and it's still low. Hold on. Are you... Come on, Google. Come good, on, Google. Good old Google users have it, I think, spot on, the way I feel, 77%. I might even go 80 or 82, not quite 85, but it's definitely up there. Uh, yes, and I get why, even for my, my Google people, it's still higher than all the others, but this is a hardcore movie, and if you're not into hard, I mean, you can like Freddy and Jason and still find Victor Crowley like, what the Fuck, I can't handle this much. So I kind of get that. I love this movie. This is a near-perfect slasher, fun popcorn movie to me. Oh, you I hit can't rate it objective. Nail in the head. This is absolutely a popcorn movie. And the best way for me to enjoy my popcorn was a good old-fashioned blood-soaked death scene. And, and okay. um, uh, on Fat Tony's hit list, we've got... Nine. Nine slayed and bloody, decapitated, armed, <laughs> removed Faces bodies. ground down. <laughs> I fucking love it. And we're going to talk about them at length as we continue on. But I have to say, the biggest positive 
to this movie that I can give to it. Do you it. feel that? Do you feel the rain coming down? Do you feel the drought over? Glory, glory, hallelujah. The great rants from the Black Lodge podcast titty drought of 2020 has finally come to an end on Stank Dick Eddie's titty tally. We have 14 bare breasts, possibly more, during the Mardi Gras scene. Oh, thank God. I mean, I love, we've covered some classics. The Exorcist. People under the stairs, but sometimes you just want blood and tits in a horror movie, and this one delivers. And the, in honor of Joe Bob Briggs, blood, breast, beast. That's what you want yes. in a horror movie, and this movie checks all three things off that list. Now listen, we've got a lot to cover uh, tonight, uh, and there's no better place than to start from the beginning. So let's go from page to screen. Adam Green was born and raised in the small town of Holliston, Massachusetts. Uh, he grew up a huge fan of horror movies and hard rock, much like you and I. Fuck yeah. Um, parlaying that love into hosting his own morning, uh, morning radio program, which was entitled Coffee and Donuts, on the town's local radio station. Upon graduating from college with a Bachelor's of Science in Film and Television Production, Green landed a job producing and directing local and regional cable television commercials at Time Warner Cable Advertising back in his hometown of Baston. Back in Baston. <laughs> While working at Time Warner, he met cinematographer Will Barrett, and in 1988, the two founded their own production company called Areascope Pictures. Um, if you are not subscribed to the Areascope Pictures uh, YouTube channel, do so now. They have a lot of great comment, uh, content, including... Um, Adam Green's Scary Sleepover, which is finally stuff. Every Halloween, they do a, a short film, and they've got some really, really fun fun ones. Uh, Columbus Day Weekend, uh, I can't recommend that enough. I don't think I've seen that one. I'm uh, subscribed, if, but I haven't like really gone through it. Go, go to the back and just work your way through, because you will not be disappointed. Um, independent filmmaking is not... It's not an easy task, and uh, Adam Green's road to uh, slasher stardom was a bumpy one. Adam had this to say about not giving up in his filmmaking dreams. For all my cheerleading and never give up bravado that I put over, put I put out to whoever might be listening, the honest truth is that I want to give up and quit at least twice every single day. Those fan messages, postings, letters, tweets, they keep me going and remind me that I'm not... Uh, to, to not quit no matter what I do what it takes and that I matter can I can a horror film a candid podcast or putting my real life uh, on display form of a sitcom mean even to change the world probably not but it's absolutely can mean enough to change an individual's world in a positive way now prior to Hatchet Adam didn't have droves of fans giving him positive reinforcement but he did have an unlikely cheerleader in the form of Twisted Sisters frontman D Snyder. Now I'm going to tell the story the sort of the abridged version when Adam was coming up he had in his mind a handful of things he wanted to produce and uh when you are broke and you do not have you know the the funds to go about this it, it could be a roadblock that's just near insurmountable he grew up a huge hard rock fan and he had uh throughout the course of his life several opportunities to meet d snyder and d snyder i've met him great guy uh lead singer of twisted sister uh, uh and uh star of strange land the really underrated uh, 
the horror film from and the... Humiliator of Tipper Gore. Goddamn right. He stood up for the flag. Damn right. <laughs> fuck, fuck censorship. Um, but Adam had these opportunities to meet with him. And he kind of, you know, offhand would say, like, hey, this is what I'm going through. And no matter what, Dee was like, you know, fuck the system. Go for your dreams. If you fail, at least you fail on your own terms. So it was weird. It's almost like this weird happenstance. Of like every point in Adam's life, when he was near giving up, he had this interaction with Dee Snyder, and he kept That's him. Awesome. He gave him enough, like you know, mojo uh, pep talk for it to keep him going. Um, it's weird because the reason I want to talk about this is, in a weird way, Adam Green is is that to me. Adam Green is the progenitor and the uh the evolution of what this podcast is and was intended to be i am a big fan of adam and joe lynch's podcast the movie crypt yeah that's a good one um i i only support two patreons number one being our good friend at um uh uh fuck uh, matt scott who uh who, uh, his Von Grimm Productions, they do really good, uh, Haunted House work, uh, really good, uh, mask and stuff. Uh, he's a friend, so there's a personal attachment there, but I also support the movie Crypt because it's a podcast run by fans for fans. And going back in time, uh, he and Joe Lynch were offered an opportunity to do uh, a running commentary track for Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Yeah. And that was the genesis of their podcast. And that commentary track is so fucking entertaining. Oh, God, especially yeah. from two guys that aren't involved with the movie, but they do more about the movie than the track that you actually get with Joe Cito and so on and so oh, yeah. forth. And from that, they started doing the movie crypt. And they would do these awesome commentary tracks. And now the only way you can get those commentary tracks is if you're subscribed to their Patreon, which that was the... I was like, I have to support them. I have to give them money because I have to know what they think about Last Action Hero. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I mean, that's important information to have. Oh, and the great episode, by the way. Um, they have a running joke of, about um, producer Abel Ferrara. And um, <laughs> and uh, they had um, Patrick Schwarzenegger do uh, impressions of his father. It's just funny stuff. But after that, um, I, don't know if, I know you remember back in time, I, I was uh, doing a, had a website going called a Midnight Creature Feature, and it was doing fairly well, you know, uh, site visits back in the day, and then I got laid off from my job, so it was, it was a dagger in my heart, and I had to let it go. Now, you and I share uh, the opportunity that we got to see one of the very first showings of one of Adam Green's first films, Chillerama. Oh, yeah. That was fucking amazing. Now, you didn't get to speak to him, but I, I spoke to him uh, for a very bro- uh, brief moment. And I had never heard the D. Snyder story. And, um, and I don't remember exactly how we got into the conversation, but I'm just talking to him like, oh, you know, like, uh, I, I really enjoy your work because... I can tell you're a fan, and he's like, you know, that's that's just what I am. I'm a fan who got lucky, and he's like, you know, don't give up on your dreams and that sort of stuff. And I said, you know, I had a website and I had to let it go. And he's like, you know what, you're gonna have failures, and if you take those failures and you, if you live with that that feeling that you failed, you will fail. But if you take that and learn from it, you can, you know, use that as a stepping stool or a step ladder onto the next thing and 
This is the genesis of this podcast. So uh, thank you, Adam Green. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, the most really I can say is that he he started this fire, and whether it's good or not, uh, this is debatable uh, depending on the month. But uh, I, I have to say, uh, I think we thank always you. give him something to be entertained by. Uh, that's, that's that's probably true. You have to have a fucked up sensibility, probably. But uh, thank and you, this Adam. This is Green. us censoring ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe we should start a Patreon for Uncensored We'll do the podcast. Patreon for the five-hour deep dive into the room. <sighs> five hours is not enough time. That's, that's really, it have to be like a five, five-hour podcast, and then you can only really get skin deep in that amount of time. Um, getting back to Adam, in 2000, Adam directed his first feature film for the insanely low-budget $400 project called Coffee and Donuts. Now, lifting the title from his old radio program, but drawing inspiration from real-life hijinks of working with Will Barrett for a Time Warner cable advertising. Coffee and Donuts didn't light the world on fire financially, but it did receive great critical and audience reviews, allowing Adam a chance to bring his childhood creation, Victor Crowley, to the silver screen. I want to talk about that a little bit. He had this idea for Victor Crowley since he was a kid. Damn. How many people have something that they're so attached to from like their formative years and carry through to their adulthood and be able to bring that to life? I, I don't think a lot of people get that opportunity, so he's incredibly lucky in that regard. Um, but we're we're lucky that it, it didn't suck. <laughs> no, that it was quite the opposite, that it fucking smash the new millennium centuries horror I mean the way you feel about the 90s horror is kind of the way I feel and it's weird because I'm older than you is I feel about turn of the century horror for us like in the t- early 2000s yeah. most of it was bullshit no you're like, not I remember wrong you're not the wrong the highlight I remember going to see the the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre which isn't a horrible movie it's a good movie it's really good it's but, probably the best slasher remake oh it definitely uh, except for, well, Slasher remake, the best remake's Evil Dead, but that's neither here nor there. Never. No, never gonna let it go. No. But, I digress. Like, seeing that in the theater at that time was, it was like, oh my god, this is amazing. Even though it's not amazing, it's really good. But just what I'd been given at that time was such shit and Japanese remakes. And not the shit on it. The Ring's an okay, pretty good movie. Like, The Grudge had some cool visuals. I I hated it. I fucking love Naomi Watts. And I know she's like 50 fucking years old, but she could be 70, and I would... Mulholland Drive. Oh my god, thank you, David Lynch, (laughs) so fucking much. My favorite part of season three of Twin Peaks is when she's basically raping Dougie Jones, who (laughs) is uh, the uh, by proxy of... Of Agent Cooper and uh, and she's you know that's just good stuff. I love Naomi Watts, but yeah, the, I mean, agree. The The Ring is a good movie until the fucking ghost comes out of the TV. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of good horror, and then then Hatchet comes, and not only is it good horror, but it's and it, it's it's a tribute to the earlier '80s slasher, but it it elevates the game. I mean, it really does. Now, we'll continue to sing the praises of Adam Green's cinematic... I will suck his dick this whole podcast. <laughs> we'll continue to, to, do, to suck his dick <laughs> through um, throughout the podcast. Um, but first, uh, Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind to read the synopsis for the movie we're featuring tonight, Hatchet. 
get ready for one of the most talked about red blood of American horror movies of the past 20 years. When a group of New Orleans tourists takes a haunted swamp tour, they slam face first into the local legend of deformed madman Victor Crowley. What follows is a psycho spree of seat jumping scares, eye popping nudity, uh, skull splitting mayhem and beyond. Joel David Moore, Avatar, Dion Richmond, Scream 3, Tamara Feldman and Mercedes McNabb, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, star along with horror icons Kane, Jason Voorhees, Hodder, Robert, Freddy Krueger, England, and Tony Candyman Todd in this screamingly funny Carnage classic that Ain't It Cool News hails as so incredibly awesome that you just cannot conceive. Now, 100% agree. Ain't It Cool News may define Hatchet as indescribably awesome, but we're going to do our damnedest this episode to adequately describe Hatchet's awesomeness. But first, we've got to start with its creator and director, Adam Green, director of such films that you may have seen as Spiral, Frozen, not the Disney version. But it's the only Frozen you should show your children. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <coughs> I want to tell you a little story about uh, about an argument I got into uh, with somebody about Frozen. Now, at my day job, uh, as it stands, I work at a year-round haunted house, and the person whose job uh, that I now encompass when I was an underling, uh, he he uh, he kind of gave me shit for liking this movie because he said the premise of of Frozen was not believable. But I want to say to you, Greg Weir, that the events of Spy I'm sorry, Frozen did occur, and that was the inspiration for that movie. So fuck you. I do yeah. respect your. I do respect your. Uh, I mean, I don't know you, but I'll just wholeheartedly say fuck you because. <laughs> A simple premise like that is what makes for some of the best horror movies. Great, great movie. Um, he also did Digging Up the Marrow, which, admittedly, I did not see up until uh, probably the beginning of this year or end of last year. And, roughly about the same time. And I have seen it probably four or five times since then. Uh, Fat Fuck Scott, I've got him turned on to it. His wow, wife, he actually likes a good movie. Yeah, he, he really does. And uh, it just goes back to Adam Green just being such a likable person because he, he drives a lot of the plot of that film. Uh, very creative. The monsters in that are terrific. Yeah, the monster works great. And you got Ray Weiss uh, from uh, Robocop and Twin Peaks fame, so how could you go wrong? Uh, starred, wrote, and directed two seasons of Holliston, which uh, was adapted from his feature film, Coffee and Donuts. I love Holliston. I got both seasons on Blu-ray. And unfortunately, if not for the death of Guar frontman Dave Brocky, we would uh, have more seasons. Uh, Hail Odorous. Uh, Hail Odorous. Um, great, great character in the show. Uh, shout out to Fat Fuck Scott for getting me um, the autographed Holliston poster by both Adam Green and Joe Lynch from my birthday. Very cool. It's now hanging prominently in the Black Lodge. But Adam is most, uh, most remembered as the director of three of the four Hatchet films that exist as of 2020. The first thing I want to talk about is the horror revival of the mid to late 2000s. Now, so around 2006, 2007, we got Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Great which is a movie. Fucking great movie. Severance, um, which is a really good satire on office workers kind of yeah. you know, going nuts on a retreat. Um, Joe Lynch's Wrong Turn 2, which is Fucking night and day from the first one. It's got kind of a Texas Chainsaw Master, Texas Chainsaw Master 2 kind of dynamic to it. Yeah. Um, I, I met, um, uh, fuck, um, Black Flag singer. 
Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins. I met him uh, when I was working in the media. Uh, I got to go backstage uh, at the Tennessee Theater or the Bijou. Can't remember which one. And we we talked about that movie and the Friday Thirteenth for a good half an hour, forty five minutes. He, really cool guy. Um, I love Wrong Turn too. It's just fun, blood soaked ridiculousness. And of course, uh, a movie that has uh, proliferated uh, the holiday season. Probably the best. Halloween film not called Halloween and that being Trick or Treat and of course there are several others on down the line uh, the thing all these movies have in common aside from being really good is that they're all to some degree self-referential and satirical in nature first question how influential do you think Hatchet is in this trend of comedic self-referential horror now it's post-scream and that's probably the the one from the 90s that kind of shifted, but at least, for the most part, Scream, even though self-referential and kind of playing on the tropes and uh, the quirks of slasher movies, it still played straight. It played straight and thought it, you know, and for as much as I like Scream, it did think it was cool. Like the, like the aloof, cool guy. Fucking Hatchet just, it, it wants to have fun. Hatchet is the fat Tony of slasher movies. It's here to fucking party. <laughs> And, you know, maybe rip some motherfucker's arm off. I don't know. But, no, I definitely think a lot a lot of movies, like, that turned up the volume of th- things from the past, slasher tropes, and things I think is heavily influential. And I think Adam Green is definitely on the spearhead of, like, a lot of new horror that, that's coming out now. Like, not, like, I don't think he had influenced, um, I can't even, Ari Aster's Hatchet or Midsommar very much. But a lot of other filmmakers, you could definitely tell. Ari Aster made a movie called Hatchet? No, Ari Aster made Midsommar and Hereditary. I know, but you said... Oh, well, okay, I'm a little buzzed. I'm saying it doesn't... It, I would Adam def- Green's probably not big in the world of the A- A24 horror movies. Uh, yeah, but you know what... And I love those. I don't get me no, wrong. No, no, and and that's this podcast is a celebration of the spectrum of horror, schlock. You know, deep. I mean, the the past few months we've done really movies that have thematic elements to them that go beyond surface level. And I'm not saying that there isn't elements of this film that go. You don't see deeper. the class struggle and uh, systematic oppression of the government <laughs> in, in, inherent in the story of Victor Crowley. Wake up, sheeple! <laughs> not, not precisely, but this is this is you pointed it out a little earlier. This is popcorn fun Hell in yeah. its best in, in iteration. This is something you put on. You're on a date. You know, uh, the girl either gets grossed out or scared into your arms. So I mean, it's a win-win situation. You like blood and guts and and metal music. This is the the perfect uh, you know cross section of all those things. Now, Adam, like you and I, grew up idolizing the horror filmmakers that came before him and worshipped the slasher icons of the 80s. Um, There's a vocal group of horror fans who resent the satirical style of younger filmmakers like Adam Green. Now, unlike Green's generation, the slasher directors of the 70s and 80s were inspired by different things. Therefore, slashers, like the old school slashers, have a different flavor to them. Um, My question to you, do you think that a traditional... No humor post-scream slasher franchise can work. Now, I didn't say slasher movie, slasher franchise. franchise. That's important, important, important to this. Um, or is Hatchet a Hatchet-style slasher the natural progression of the medium? I think it's the natural progression. Like nowadays, I don't. It's been done so many times 
that like sadly I just heard they're making another Scream movie and again one two I like I love one I liked two three I could name four I really liked I'm sorry I just fucking did I own Scream four and I've only seen it once and that was in theaters. <laughs> And th- but they don't need to do it because again they play it straight. They don't. I mean, they're still the meta humor. They're trying to bite off the cool from the '90s instead of like Adam Green, Joe Lynch, and the others. They're like elevate, you know, have fucking fun with it, make it your own thing. So yeah, I believe Hatchet and and its ilk are the wave of slasher movies going on. Oh. I don't see a played straight slasher well, franchise me, working. Well, let me ask you this, like. You strip the humor away from Hatchet and ground it a little more in reality. Does the film still work, or is it just a dime a dozen slasher film? It's no, because uh, the kills elevate it. Yeah, but it, but you have to think too. Like some some of these kills, some as these grandiose kill- as they are, they're still kind of played for laughs. If, but if you still have the inherent ghost killer that not only kills you, but he's going to make that shit hurt. And we'll go over the kills as we go. I mean, he doesn't just kill. He doesn't come and snap a neck real quick or, you know, stab you in the head. No, he's going to torture you. Yeah, these are very long and yeah, drawn yeah. out. Yeah, nobody dies easy in this movie. But if you have that without the humor, it it's, might make it the kills more effective in some instances if you, like, take away the humorous element and still have the same gore effect. But the overall tone of the movie... Nobody's going to want to go back to the well on that. No, there's not going to be a hatchet two or three. I'm going to I'm going to use RoboCop as an example. Now I own the Criterion Collection RoboCop, the X-rated cut, and it has there's that awesome boardroom scene where Ed two hundred nine <laughs> blows the shit out of that Just fucking guy, shooting him. and the MPAA when they cut that down to an R rating, they actually made that scene more effective because in the original cut it goes on so long. That it's ridiculous. Becomes ridiculous. So, I, I'm i going to agree with you that there there probably could be a serious version of this movie, but they would have to cut those kills down. Yeah, they have to cut them down, but there's still the implied thing of you're going to hurt. Uh, if they kept that in there, it'd make for one decent, decent horror movie if you take out the humor. But, you know, it's all that. It's, it's, a, it's a spicy gumbo. I don't know that they could even... I still think they could probably franchise it, but do I think we'd be four movies deep? Probably not. No. It probably would have petered out to maybe got a, th- a third one. But uh, Victor Crowley lives on, uh, you know, whether you enjoy the humor or you don't. You know, And if you don't, fuck you. <laughs> now, we'll, we'll talk about Adam's skill as a director uh, where applicable as we continue down the list. But first, we have to discuss the main ingredient to any great slasher film, that being its antagonist, Kane Hodder. As oh, Victor fuck Crowley, yeah. who's had um, uh, acting roles in films such as House 2, Prison, Ghoulies 3, where he has the the best mullet you've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pumpkinhead 2, Wishmaster, Children of the Corn 5, more recently Death House, but he's going to be remembered for his roles in Friday the 13th, 7, 8, Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X, as the titular killer, Jason Voorhees. And, of course, he reprises his role as Victor Crowley in all the Hatchet sequels. Now, aside from his on-screen acting roles, Kane is also a well-known and respected stuntman, having appeared in Lone Wolf McQuaid, Hard Bodies, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2, and that being the one directed by Wes Craven, not the 
the yeah. sequel to the remake. Uh, Waxwork Deep Star 6, which was directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who directed the original Friday the 13th. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, which is available in our, our, our archives, so go to JuicyKroger.com. Uh, it's one there. I'm on, so definitely check definitely. it out. Uh, Lethal Weapon 3, Under Siege, Demolition Man, Batman Forever 7, Monster, Daredevil, Friday the 13th, the game, we did the mocap for that, and more recently, the Impractical Jokers movie. Now, there's a lot to be proud of in the that Stuntman resume, but Stuntman rarely get the credit they deserve. Kane had this to say about the treatment of Stuntman. Not only do they get paid millions of dollars, but they get to go on talk shows. He's speaking of actors here. But they get to go on talk shows and say they did all their own stunts. That happens all the time. I've seen actors from movies I worked with saying they did all their own stunts. There is no actor who does their own stunts, all their own stunts, period. Don't listen to any of them. They may do a few of them, not even Jackie Chan. He probably does the most stunts, though. Now, in recent years, there has been a big push for the Academy Awards to add a stunt category to its list of awards. Uh, Reportedly, the reason the Academy has been reluctant to add this category is because of pressure from studio public relations wanting their action stars to appear like they do more of the stunts than they actually do. That way they can promote that. My question to you, what's your take on this category not existing to begin with in the Academy Awards? I think it's bullshit. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I get, I understand where the studio's coming from. They want their action guys to seem larger than life. It's especially probably, you know, back in the 80s when, like, it was all popcorn action Yeah, but film. was there ever a point in your life, sans childhood, where you thought, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is no, actually doing No, there was doing never that. a point. And then there was times where I'm like, holy shit, this network... Watching Mad Max Fury Road, I'm like, holy shit. Because, you know, there's a lot of practical effects and a lot of practical stunts. That's when I think that movie deserves a fucking Oscar. And Do you do you remember the uh, the uh, maybe the first time you ever realized that it was a stuntman doing something? Oh, yeah. I was actually a little kid. My uh, older brother and sister from my dad's first marriage were staying the weekend. We were, I, can't, I don't remember what action movie. It was, but it was definitely like either an Arnold or a Sylvester Stallone 80s action movie, and you totally see the stuntman. Like, it was obvious to me at like four, maybe five, because we all pointed it out. The The first one that I can remember, and I'm I'm fairly certain it's Moonraker, but it, it could be The Spy Who Loved Me, the James Bond film, where Roger Moore is jumping out of an airplane and hit... And, on VHS, you could probably get away with get it. away with it, but on DVD and beyond, it's so obvious that it's not Roger Moore doing this stunt. So that was probably the first point that I realized that stuntmen were, you know, kind of sitting in for these these bigger uh, action moments of films. But yeah, I, my my take on it is like how how can they get away with not giving these uh, people recognition because. They do get paid well in comparison to like a Extras. day a day laborer, yeah. you know, a, a grip and stuff like that. Look especially at the risk they face. That's the point I'm getting ready to make. No. They're putting their lives on the line to do some of these stunts. Uh, Kane Hodder uh, notoriously got burnt uh, doing a, a television interview. Yeah, I always uh, I never knew that it was from an interview. I always just assumed it was a movie stunt gone bad until. Oh, this is hell and Fang- back. No, it wasn't the documentary. I knew before that it's like a Fangoria, but like when Fangoria came back the first time, not yeah. the original run. I think it was somewhere around then 
that I'm like, holy shit, that was just for an interview? It's just I'll, an ex- it, uh, funny that uh, I'll uh, kind of sidebar from what we were just talking about. Um, Fangoria got brought back because of a company, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the company, and Adam Green and Joe Lynch's podcast, The Movie Crypt, they joined the this podcast network, which was created by the Fangoria uh, people who are funding it. Uh, however, pretty recently, uh, come to find out that a lot of their high-ranking officials are sexual predators, Ew. so they uh, they opted out. So who knows if Fangoria is going to survive? Um, it's sad, but probably online or something like that. It probably the physical media. No, yeah, I mean, you don't want we don't want our stuff associated with those scum to begin with. But now the movie Crypt and all that is uh, you know back independent, which I mean I'm sure it's not going to affect their numbers not no. too badly. They have a great following. Um, going back to the the uh, stunt issue, you know, you have all these different uh, technical awards they give. Like, there's a stunt award for the uh, Screen Actors Guild and stuff like that. So I, I don't understand why there's not one for the Oscars. Now, the Oscars doesn't need to be any longer than what it is. And a lot of the, the minor awards, they don't even give out on the major show but still, at least, least put it on that one where they give out the technical awards. At least do that, you dicks. Yeah, because uh, these guys are putting their, their lives on the line for relatively very little. And I mean, a lot of them have been permanently scarred uh, because yeah, of. You, like, I was watching something about, like, uh, Mila Jovovich's stunt woman on one of the Resident Evil movies. Like, I mean, I know the thing that stuck with me is the skin on her face was pulled off. Cool. Yeah, and like she was permanently crippled. I mean, these people literally risk life and limb. And I mean, it's definitely an art form, and these people are highly trained. But even the most highly trained person, that doesn't mean like something fucked up, you know, one in a million fuck up will occur. I mean, they're. Exactly. You know, and I know we give Tom Cruise massive shit on this podcast. And by the way, fuck, fuck you, you, Tom Cruise. Fuck you, Tom Cruise. But I will give him credit where credit is due. I mean, he does do a lot of his own stunts. <clears throat> Not all of them, as uh, Kane Hodder is. Zenu keeps him safe. And that's, that's true. Zenu's his co pilot. Ah, fuck Scientology. Oh, man. Well, maybe that's the secret sauce. Maybe that's why that's true. so many uh, stuntmen. still made looks of... young. Oh, my God. Are we converting? Oh, my God. Maybe we need to. Maybe we're. We I'm so sorry, Zenu. Take my thetans, Zena. <laughs> ah. Okay, uh, but before we discuss Kane's role as Victor Crowley, I'd like to point out that Hatchet allotted him an opportunity that he had rarely gotten before. He also got to show his acting skills in Hatchet and in Hatchet 2, and particularly as uh, Victor Crowley's father, Thomas Crowley. Uh, the reason I did that big rundown of his stunt work was to highlight how active he's been in a film, but how little on camera he's been able to do that didn't require pounds and pounds of latex appliances. Now, since the film, Kane has received a lot more acting roles, and I have to think that is at least in part for his performance as Thomas Crowley. Um, prior to this film, did you think of Kane as predominantly a stuntman or as an actor? It's weird because I'm going to lean on actor because, I mean, I know all the stuff he did in the Friday the 13th movies and other movies, but it's his presence. 
you know, okay, on but, the screen okay. that is, okay. We, you and I are both viewing this through the eyes of somebody who knows the inner workings of horror films. Do you think the average no, person would absolutely view him? stuntman. I, I can answer that easy. They're going to think he's a stuntman. He's just, you know, a dude in a suit. Doesn't matter who. They're not going to look at it like, you know, horror movie aficionados are. It's like a guy. He's a big guy. He can do what they need him to do. The So he's probably not thought of by most people as an actor or wasn't. But on a previous episode of this very podcast, you can go back in the archives on JuicyKruger.com to uh, to listen to our uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 episode. Uh, famously, Robert England was replaced with not even a stuntman, just a, a fucking Dude. guy. And just because you can put on a costume doesn't mean you're adequate for the role. So I agree. He brought a lot more acting to these roles, whether they be silent or otherwise, than a lot of people would give him credit for, but it's nice to see that he gets an opportunity to shine in this movie. Uh, he's great as the dad, like, especially, like, you know, let's talk about how he's a recluse and just sitting there. I loved it. But I'm also going to flip the script here a little bit. He does a lot of great acting in costume, in character, as Victor Crowley. His, his body, ah, his body no. language, and the, the way he carries himself, like, and you would think, to to a lesser person, he could have just done exactly what he did with Jason for this role, but he he gives it an no, entirely new. Yeah, it doesn't even feel a, a thing like Jason. Um, whether you see Kane as an actor or a stuntman, you can't deny his status as a horror icon. The status originally uh, originated from him being the only actor to play Jason Voorhees more than once, with a total of four times. Five, if you include the motion capture from Friday the 13th, the video game. But in recent years, he's added to that legacy with four appearances as Victor Crowley. Now, undeniably, Jason is the more iconic role, but it's also not a role that Kane originated. But in many people's eyes, he perfected. And in many people's eyes, he didn't. Uh, it's, it's a wide variety. Very, cr- critics and, uh, you know, people who sing his praises. Whether he is the only person, uh, whereas he's the only person to play uh, adult Victor Crowley, and he built that part from the ground up. So, my question to you, four appearances as Jason, four appearances as Victor Crowley, at this point right now, what's his legacy? I mean, I hate to say it, because I don't want it to be true, but right now his le- his legacy is Jason. Only because, like you said, Jason is the bigger franchise. Jason is massive. I know people to this day have never heard of fucking Hatchet. Probably never will. Even though they should. And if I hear somebody not seeing Hatchet, I will be like, you need to watch our fucking movies. Character-wise, I mean, Kane Hodder is the best Jason in the worst Friday the 13th movies. That, you know, we, it's I, debatable. I sub- Subjectively, you are correct. I... I I can't say objectively, um, because there there is... I mean, there's there, great moments in other Friday 13th with uh, other it's, Jasons. It's a cornucopia of possibilities. But he's and only Victor explosion. Crowley. Victor Crowley's him. I, 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 again, a much bigger franchise. Robert England is Freddy. And even though I the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street, I liked and Jackie Earl Haley did fine. Robert England's Freddy. Victor Crowley is Kane Hodder. Like, there's nobody else, I think, that could do it justice. Now, obviously, we're viewing this through the lens of 2020. Now, fast forward, say, 2030, and there's another four Hatchet movies. 
So he's Victor Crowley eight times and Jason only four. Does that perception change, uh, it, or is he locked in that he's Jason? I think it's and that's locked in. One. I think it, it's it's uh, it's such a behem like a massive, massive franchise that laid the roots down for the slasher move for Hatchet to exist. No Jason, or he's oh, no the, Victor Crowley, undeniably. So I don't think, unless somehow randomly, Victor Crowley 5 just knocks it out of the park and it's fucking just a game changer, instead of a great fun movie, which it probably will be, I think it's always going to be Jason. Because, I mean, it's like uh, the moon versus the earth. The earth is the bigger force. The the slasher characters who really catch on and have staying power as far as fandom and commercial appeal usually are somewhat of a result of actors behind them hitting a nerve with people in their performance. But another aspect that all the greats have in common is a strong backstory and mythology. Victor Crowley's backstory, which you kind of get... The bare uh, bones in, in the first Yeah, movie. and then you get a little more into in three. Um, do you how, how do you think this stacks up? Uh, as opposed to like the backstory of you know, oh Jason. the backstory is fucking great and as it's expanded on in like the the hatchet trilogy like it's probably one of the best horror movie backstories and arcs period for like a horror movie character like you, you get the bare bones story in the first one they build on it in the second one and then they bring it to a logical kind of conclusion in hatchet three and then they say fuck it we're doing victor crowley fuck you <laughs> but uh no backstory's great uh, I like the aspect of it that is sort of like survive the night, yeah. you know, because you know he's not out roaming during the day. He's a nighttime predator, and there's a an aspect of him that is sort of alluded to in the later Friday Thirteenth movies, where he's both a zombie and a ghost. Because you mean hatchet movies? Well, no, I'm talking. Oh, about, you're talking about that. Okay. The, the Jason character yeah. in the later movies is kind of a zombie, but at the same time, he does paranormal things. That like, like in part eight, I mean, fucking pr- practically teleports. So Victor Crowley has these aspects in the Hatchet movies that are reminiscent of like post part six Jason, um, but with their own kind of flair. Oh yeah. Um, did you ever see Friday Thirteenth Vengeance? That our good friend Mick Strong worked on. No, I'm okay, sorry. Well, you need, you need, I failed. You need, to, you need to check it out. I'll send you a link to it. Um, it's actually getting a, a video release here pretty soon, like physical copy. The original concept for Friday the 13th Vengeance was a little more rooted in like kind of what Victor Crowley is and that he's he's both physical and a ghost at the same time. And the reason that there's discontinuity from the way he looks and all these things is because every victim is perceiving him differently because he's sort of this ethereal thing. That's amazing. I I know right now that doesn't necessarily end up in vengeance. That was the original idea, but then it got kind of the ball rolling. It became bigger and it became a full length feature film. But I like the idea of explaining things away in a way that's satisfying and hatchet does that because there's well the obvious uh changing character which doesn't make sense but there's a, a shift from part one to part two and the way he looks 
He's a lot more uh, exaggerated in the first movie. So, I mean, maybe you could throw that into account. But all the same, like the idea that he's sort of whatever... It's kind of like a Pennywise kind of thing. Right? I get he, that, he, yeah. is, he is what uh, your perception of the the mythos and the backstory and you know the, the campfire tale is. I just think that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Now, Kane's fingerprints are all over Hatchet in the form of its many over-the-top kills, and we will spotlight them as we go down the line. But first, we have to set the stage with our protagonist. We have Joel David Moore as Ben. Thank you so much, Joel, for taking time out of your busy schedule making all those goddamn Avatar movies <laughs> to give us an introduction for this film. Uh, you may know Joel David Moore from his uh, stints in Dodgeball. He was also in Spiral, which was directed uh, by Adam Green. He had Shark Knight 3D, which is a shitty movie, but that is uh, one of the most fun times I've had in the theater. I've still never seen that. Um, it came out maybe a couple years after Piranha. It's definitely trying to capitalize on that whole thing. It's about freshwater sharks that get released by... I'm I remember you telling here. me about it. Like, it's dumb as hell, but it's fun. It, it was fun in the theater. I wouldn't watch it again. Without the, you know, the benefit of 3D, oh, yeah. you're, probably, you're probably losing a lot. But Joel brings a lot to the character, regardless if he's, he's you know, marquee or if he's a lesser, you know, minor role. He's going to bring his A-game. Uh, in Chillerama, which I absolutely love, uh, Fuck yeah. he, he plays a goofy cuck version of Adolf Hitler in uh, The Short Diary of Anne Frankenstein, which was also directed by Adam Green. Uh, he played Norm Spellman in James Cameron's, uh, James Cameron's Avatar, and will be reprising his role in all the sequels. Not an Avatar fan, but you got to give uh, the devil credit for creating uh, something truly out-of-the-box spectacular on a visual level. Wasn't he in Avatar with Sigourney Weaver, who was in Ghostbusters? And did I just bust you, or were you leading up to that? I'm. You beat me to the punch, but I <sighs> Sorry, had... Sorry, you had that down. But later on, there's going to be an even better you got busted. Oh, I was waiting and didn't hear it coming. I'm like, how do you miss that? He is probably best known to my generation as J.P., in the stoner comedy classic, Grandma's Boy. Yeah, I love that fucking movie. <laughs> robot voice, and uh, that's that's just fun, fun, dumb stuff. Yeah, it's no, you know it's not a good movie, inherently, but it is fun. Now, since the filming of Hatchet, Joel David Moore and Adam Green have become close friends, going as far that you know Joel actually co-directed Spiral with Adam. Have you seen Spiral? No. Um, Spiral is kind of cool because... Uh, I think her name, oh man, I'm blanking her name, uh, Corey English, I may be mispronouncing, or misremembering, Corey English, I think is her name, who goes on to be uh, one of the main characters in his show, Holliston, so oh. Adam had this great uh, working relationship with a lot of his actors and brought them to utilize them for other roles, and it's like a family affair. Um, but Spiral's a psychological thriller, kind of a dissension, and from the point of view of uh, the killer as he kind of goes through his mental I mean, breakdown. it's Adam Green, I'm sold. It's I heard it. you talking about it, and I'm like, I'm going to have to watch it's, this. It's a, good, it's a good movie. Uh, however, even though they've been friends, it's a torturous relationship, especially on the set, because Adam loves to mess with Joel to get a more genuine reaction from him. Now, during the scene where Ben is in Victor Crowley's shed, um, the dismembered body of Mercedes, who we'll talk about a little later on, 
gets chucked at him. Now, he was expecting that. What he wasn't expecting is that Adam had the prop department fill the body with a 20-pound sandbag. <laughs> so when he gets hit, he gets legit knocked the fuck out. Damn. So he was constantly doing things like this to him on it's set. It's like a Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell kind oh, of Oh, my vibe. God. That is a perfect comparison to, to what's going on there. Because, yeah, he just he enjoyed the how the genuinely... Like, what the fuck? Your reactions he would get out of him. Now, a fun, another funny instance, uh, Joel being fucked with, uh, comes towards the end of the film where he's on the ground with Victor hovering over him when slobber pours from Victor's mouth into Joel's mouth. The slobber was made of Mountain Dew and KY jelly, <laughs> um, which is sounds disgusting. Now, um, speaking of puke, um, uh, Joel has a part in the movie where he throws up and uh, he he legitimately threw up first take Damn. like that was all him because Adam insisted that he be genuine and whether he wanted him to actually do this for you know the art to film or if he just wanted to make his buddy throw up you know <laughs> that's that's, bes- that's beside the point um but second take he was a little more kind to him and they gave him a a cocktail uh, made up of cold clam chowder and orange juice which sounds like the most disgusting thing. That That's would what make... I imagine a senior citizen woman's vagina tastes like. <laughs> Except for Betsy Palmer. <laughs> yeah, Betsy Palmer was sweet ambrosia, I'm sure. <laughs> Even still today, buried six feet under. <laughs> Rats, respect, gentlemen. <laughs> respect your elders. Um, grossness aside, uh, Joel brings a lot of likability to the role of Ben, and it is seemingly sort of set up as the main character, at least initially, but halfway through the film, we get swerved with the revelation that Mary Beth is actually our main character. Ben sticks around to the end of the film, so you could still call him a main character in a sense. But do you think the shift from Ben to Mary Beth being our quote-unquote hero hurts the film's uniqueness? Or is it just the final girl trope that is ineg- integral to part of a slasher film? I mean, I'm fine with it because it's not such a huge... He's set up to be kind of a like a, a weakling dude anyway, who still acquits himself well. It's his idea to go back and get the gas, and you know, but it, he that's not his element. That's the chicks swamp people, so it's her element. I never really stopped thinking of him as a main character. It's just like there became two people. My, I don't feel this way now, but initially when I very first watched it, I found it kind of let down. Because I thought they were doing something different with having... Because usually guy, it's yeah. a female protagonist and having this this bumbling guy, almost Bruce Campbell-esque, yeah. kind of become the the hero, you know, the hero that we need, not the one we deserve <laughs> or whatever. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. And I've... Because the, the original three films kind of serve as one big giant film, Having it be Mary Beth's story makes the most sense, so I understand why they did it, but it, as a microchasm, just the first movie, I initially felt kind of slighted by this, because you like Joel so much. Oh, yeah. And it's not that uh, Tamara Feldman, who we'll talk about in a few moments, um, it's not that she's bad in the film. I mean, she's actually really, really good, but I don't know. There's just something about Joel that you just want to see him. Oh, yeah. You want to see him succeed and kind of live on. So I, I have grown a little more forgiving he of this. You used to hate women a lot more than you currently <laughs> That's does. not true. No. I hate them even more now. 
And I love women. I love women physically when they allow me and mentally all the time. Emotionally, Speak- never, because I'm heartless. Speaking of women, I do have to interject here real quickly. Last month's podcast, when I was speaking of Sean Whalen's Got Milk commercial, acting like I just remembered that, I was wrong. My fiance was the one who reminded me of that before I did the podcast, so I'm just giving her official credit. Because if not, I won't get any more blowjobs. And I love you, <laughs> well, Sarah. Well, let's keep that blowjob quota to, to the max. Um, so thank you, Sarah, for contributing to the podcast, albeit in a secondhand fashion. Uh, like I said, Ben sticks around to the end. And if not for his reemergence in Hatchet 3, which was a, just a fucking great, yeah. great inserted cameo, um, you'd be justified in believing that he fell prey to Victor Crowley. But actually, he only suffers having his arm ripped off. One of quite a few yet to come. A lot of fucking limbs on in this movie. Now, another likable element of Hatchet comes in the form of its heroine, Mary Beth Dunstan, played by Tamara Fellman. Now, Tamara, uh, you've seen her in... Well, I haven't, but these are probably things that the general populace have seen her in. Dirty Sexy Money, uh, Gossip Girl. She both had recurring roles in that. That's... Uh, eye cancer to me wouldn't. Uh, not yeah. no offense, but I I've wouldn't. heard the name. Uh, as well as smaller roles in CSI, CSI New York, One Tree Hill, Royal Pains, Boston Legal, and Monk. At least a couple of those I probably could have seen her in. Um, Tamara's acting career took a big hit in 2015 when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, she decided to ride across the United States in aid for the charity uh, called Race to a Race MS which she documented on her website, which was called And So I Ride. Four months into her journey, she had to give up due to fatigue and health problems. Um, Around the same time, she changed her name to Amara Zaragoza, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, when she started working with an Aztec medicine man for a month or so to help her with her multiple sclerosis. He urged her to drop the T from her name because Amara means beloved, and to use her maternal grandmother's last name to let the spirits know she had MS. Essentially, Amara does not have MS, but Tamara does. Okay, now, far be it for me to judge anybody if it helps them do what you mentally. Do. Uh, especially, and I don't want to make light of this, this situation and her condition, but I am fairly certain that changing your name is not medically proven to treat MS. Not trying to be an asshole, That's I'm just saying. Big Pharma has you right where they want you. You're, you're probably right. You're probably right. And crazy Hollywood philosophies aside, her acting ability, it can't be denied. Watching the movie back this past week, I was actually taken back by how believable she was. There, There is a subtle fragility to her character. Like, she's... She's holding it together just enough to to blend in, but then when it kind of the, the she la- finds her the, family dead, like yeah, you. the latch snaps, and she's just you know here comes the gates and the hellhounds are coming out. Um. So what do you, what do you think about her and this performance? And let's uh, put it into perspective. Just this movie, just this movie. Not I, not to take away from the, take- the recasting, which we'll talk about in just a minute. No, I think she did great. There was a couple of the crying moments. That I honestly, just re-watching again this week, I'm not dogging her. I love her in this movie. She's great. But a couple instances where she's crying about, that's my daddy or that's my my brother. It, it felt acty. Acty. And I don't want to shit on her. 
because the recast is nowhere near perfect either. That fucking accent. But but she does great in the movie. As good as Tamara is in certain scenes as Mary Beth, a lot of the credit has to go for her performance uh, to Adam Green. During the scenes where she discovers the dead body to her brother in Victor Crowley's shack, she was actually, she hadn't seen the props. Um, And for added effect, Adam kept Tamara in the dark for 20 minutes. I mean, like pitch black dark. Now, and then he killed a real father and brother. <laughs> My daddy. <laughs> um, while while in the dark, Adam told her stories that he'd made up about Mary Beth's relationship to her brother. I mean, this is all like off the cuff, off the top of his head. And by the time they were ready to shoot, uh, Tamara had completely become Mary Beth um, mentally. So when the crew hit the lights, the film. Uh, the scene, she absolutely broke down. Um, not only from the shock of seeing the prop for the very first time, but it's also from the emotional ride that Adam kind of took her, took her on emotionally. So, uh, you know, I don't know what scenes particularly you're talking about that you found uh, kind of disconnected from the crying. Um, right when she finds it, it's fine. It's something later on where they're talking and she kind of have a little breakdown too. Like I just. Uh, just a little acting, and uh, again, that could have just been me because I think right before then, oh fuck, I've watched some serious, hoity-toity dramatic movie with the girls, and that was well acted. And then you know you go to you switch gears to a slasher film. That could have just been my bias. She's great in the movie, and honestly, like her accent sounds a hell of a lot more real. That's that's I I will agree with you on that front. Um, acting wise, I. This particular moment, in my opinion, is one of the better moments of the film, acting-wise, that's verbal. Because I think, personally, I think some of the best physicality acting you're going to get is just from the the way Kane Hodder... Oh, yeah, just as I would kill everything all the time. I was just enamored enamored by... The way he moves is just, you know, magnetic. Um, One would be justified in thinking that when the sequel was being produced, that Tamara would have been a lock to return as Mary Beth because of how well-received she was in this movie. Um, this isn't the case, as she was replaced by Daniel Harris of Halloween 4 and 5 and Rob Zombie's Halloween fame. Um, the specific details as to what caused Tamara to be recast aren't exactly publicly known, um, but I did find this quote from Adam Green about the recasting. And it's sort of backhanded, so I'll read it out and we'll kind of talk about if you can read between the lines and if whether or not some of this uh, holistic uh, medicine man stuff had something to do with it. Um, when it was becoming evident that it wasn't going to work out with bringing Tamara back, we really didn't want her and things weren't good. It was like, what do we do? Do we change all these things that were already set up all because this girl is making bad decisions with her life right now? Or do we replace her? That's when I called Danielle. Because if you're going to replace her, let's go bigger and better. When we said we were replacing Tamara Feldman, there were purists who said, What? Then we said who we were replacing her with, and they went, Yeah. I did a Q&A in London, and someone asked, Why did you replace the actress? I don't like it when people do that. I said... What was the other actress's name? He couldn't answer. 
For better or for worse, do you prefer Tamara or Danielle? Danielle and- Harris, all day, every day. I, I, will, I will ride or die with her. <laughs> that was one of my first crushes. I love her. But her accent is pretty bad in some point. But in some parts of the movie, not overall, not the entire time. It's not like ear, but it's just certain times when she's like angry in the in the sequels or yelling with that accent. I, 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 I completely agree with you. However, there's a part in, I can't remember if it's in Hatchet 2 or Hatchet 3. I'm pretty sure it's in Hatchet 2 where she leaves Honey Island Swamp and she goes and it's it's a shower scene. And it's just her breaking up. Just like breaking down That's from the part sh- two. That's part two. Um, she's oh yeah, she's full fucking phenomenal. On believable, like rape trauma victim moment yeah, right she there. She's gone through hell. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Her acting's fucking. I'll never question it. So I, I can't. I can't say that it that it's a, a bad thing that Tamara got um, recast. Seems but it's like I don't know that like it's just the Hollywood hoity toity. It might also been, you know, there's a lot of drugs out there in California. She they said specifically bad choices in her life. Sounds like she was doing something that would have made her difficult on set. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean like but then again, I mean, I I, I don't know what Adam's philosophies are on holistic stuff and like that. I mean, cuz let's just be honest, this this very fringe and I'm sure there's probably aspects of that that um, could probably get in the way of filming. And uh, but then again, I I don't know that it even corresponds date wise uh, because what no, year, it's later on. Like what you year, said, 2015. Yeah, what year? Well. So again, yeah, you're right. It wouldn't even make sense time frame wise. She could have still had hoity toity crazy fringe beliefs that would have kept her like, oh, I gotta have crystals set up on the. We don't know. Okay. Um. One one thing that is sort of opposite to what he says here when they do the commentary track on the DVD and Blu-ray, uh, they start out as just Will Barrett and, and Adam Green, but as they go along, they add more and more people into the commentary. And when Tamara comes on, everybody they go down the line. Everybody says how much they loved working with her, how good she was. So it, been it, life it, choice in between it, it movies. had to have been life choices. Yeah, because, something happened between the movies. Because it doesn't sound anything like it would have been uh, in a bad attitude on a professional level. Oh, yeah. Uh, being, so I, I don't know. All the same. Uh, Daniel Harris, Tan- I love Daniel you. Daniel Harris, uh, tomorrow, we, we love you for what you did. And uh, we're certainly uh, hoping that you... Uh, or doing well with your MS, and if you had other issues, we hope that you've overcome them as well. We love you just slightly less than Daniel Harris. Sorry. Uh, even though Tamara is no longer Mary Beth, her character lives on, uh, which is more than I could say for the rest of our cast, so let's break down our victims. Yeah. Victim number one. Actually, he's uh, the last victim of the film, but he's uh, one of our Leading man, Dion Richmond as Marcus, uh, who is the best friend to Ben in the film. Uh, best known as Kenny on The Cosby Show and Jordan on Sister Sister. So he had a long career in television. Uh, definite reoccurring roles. It was definitely a, a get for them, a low-budget oh, yeah. horror film. Uh, this guy is seasoned, and he doesn't feel like uh, he was cast just because he was a person. No, he was great in He's this fucking role. great. He, he, this whole movie... Could have been like this. The moral of this movie is never stray from the path of booze and boobs. Oh, yeah. They would have been safe. 
and fine had they stayed, you know, in the at Mardi Gras and not gone on a thugging night uh, swamp tour. Yeah, maybe they would have taken some bad acid, had a bad trip, or maybe they would have had alcohol poisoning. But both of those things, you can survive a trip to Honey Island Swamp. No, probably, you're not coming back. Probably not so much. Marcus uh, makes it to the very end of the film, but he can't escape Victor Crowley when he is hugged to death, has his arms ripped off, and is picked up by his feet and slammed into a mausoleum. So I tasked you before we started doing this podcast, and we would come up to a, uh, a rating scale on these kills. And I think we're going to continue this on uh, with a future podcast, oh, yeah. especially when applicable to horror films uh, of the slasher variety. Uh, so what, out of 10, what would you score this kill? This is my one of two tens of the movie. And it's weird because it doesn't start out. It starts out with the hug. He's, he's crushing him, run. Then he rips the arm off. And this is going back to Legacy. This is what knocks it up to a 10 for him. He picks him up and smashes him in the mausoleum. Like a throwback to the sleeping bag kill. Uh, I dude, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. That's what kicked it up to a 10. That's one of my two 10s in this movie. Okay, I... I don't have this one ranked as a 10. I have it as a 7. I think this is a, a top-notch... Like, if you take the Jason element out of it, I perfectly agree. But it just threw me back to the to the sleeping bag kill, which is like Kane Hodder's favorite kill of, like for years or something. It's one of the best kills ever in a movie. Yeah. And, and despite what you may feel about Jason X, you have to love the fucking sleeping oh, bag uh. reprisal kill in that movie. <coughs> that's, that's just fun oh, stuff. Yeah. Um... Uh, anything else uh, kind of stick out to you specifically about uh, the character of Marcus? Um, uh, there, there's one scene uh, where uh, you have the remaining characters and it's a static shot and there's rustling in a bush. <laughs> and it's the whole thing of like, what's going on over here to the left? And this scene is very funny, and it, I think it serves as one of the best jump scares of the film because you're distracted to the left, and then uh, you know when Dion starts to go over to see what's going on, that's when Victor Crowley shows up from the right, and that's one of the few times like I had forgot that, and it even kind of got me a little. Oh yeah, bit. that was a great jump scare, a, a well earned jump scare. Yeah, not quite in the vein of like an Exorcist three, which was kind of set up similar uh, similarly the way it's shot. But, uh, you know, a couple steps down. I don't oh, know. yeah. Best uh, slasher uh, jump scare ever, uh, Exorcist 3. The hallway with the, <laughs> the giant shears scene. Um, up next on our chopping block, we have Perry Shen, who plays the role of Sean, who takes our victims to their final boat ride of their lives. Um, he's appeared in all four Hatchet movies, but he plays three different characters, all of them like identical twins. Yeah. Um, uh, he has an interesting kind of flourish to his character where ever so often his accent changes where he's almost like the Jerry Blake, uh, character from the stepfather where he's trying yeah. to like, who am I right now? Um, but that's playing, he's playing more into the stereotypes of like, oh, th this is going to, I'm going to get more business in doing this. And then finally by the end, he's just a regular guy. And that was, uh, from what I understand, was actually a, he was supposed to have more of a stereotypical kind of Asian, uh, centric accent. And Perry Shen had said, ah, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So the compromise was like, well, what if you're doing this and it kind of devolves and like you're, you're, 
you can't remember exactly who you're supposed to be in the moment. So that that's a pretty pretty cool no, yeah. layer to his character. And then by your your first three films, you have which is the uh, the Mary Beth Dunstan trilogy, and then going from three into four, it's almost like you're starting a new because he's the survivor yeah. and you have his book tour and, and all of that. So he. Uh, does he get killed in Hot Hatchet 4 or does he survive? I, I can't only saw it once. Um, I can't remember. I think he survives. I might be misremembering, though. I guess we'll find out. Because Adam Green says, we are definitely going to get a Hatchet 5. So, hopefully... Uh, is it Hatchet 5 or Victor Crowley 2? Uh, That's a good question. Who knows? Who knows? It's going to be like Rambo, First Blood Part 2. It needs to be <laughs> Victor Crowley. Or Hatchet Part 5, Victor Crowley 2. <laughs> <laughs> I love numbered sequels. I I I, I was kind of bummed when they made yeah. ha- Hatchet Four, Victor Crowley. That's probably a marketing thing to kind of pick up, you know, yeah. you know, people that are not familiar. Like, oh, what's this? I'll check it out. Uh, next up on, oh wait, look at about yeah, Sean's kill. kill. Um, Sean meets his bitter end when Victor Crowley lops off his his left leg with a shovel, then proceeds to stomp. The, the shovel across uh, Sean's throat, decapitating him in the process. Um, one of the, the less uh, uh, series of events uh, when it comes to, um, like, there's less uh, specific limb damage done yeah. in this kill, but my score, I'm still going to give it a solid 7 out of 10. What have you got this 7 one? out of 10. Uh a lot, a lot of good uh, bloody fun there. Uh, next up on our killing list, uh, we have... Uh, we have a family, uh, the father and son duo, who uh, kind of shift this whole uh, chain of events into motion. The first being Robert England playing the role of Samson Dunstan, who is uh, Mary Beth's father. And I don't need to do uh, Robert's uh, rundown. Robert fucking England. Let, go back and listen to our Not Mary Elm Street Part 2 episode if you want to know the ins and outs about the career of the great Robert England. Unfortunately, Samson's death is off screen because they only had Robert for a limited amount of time. My score for this kill, unfortunately, is a one out of ten. However, the when you do uh, find what's left yeah. of his body, that's a pretty cool visual. But you know, we're talking on screen kills one out here. Of 10. One out of ten. Up next, being the brother of Mary Beth Dunstan, played by Joshua Leonard. Uh, his character name is Ansley. Uh, do you know where this gentleman is from? Where you've seen him from before? Well, if you take a trip back to 1999, he was in the mega hit playing the role of Josh in the Blair Witch Project. Fuck. I didn't know that until I did this research. Because I don't think... Josh was the long-haired... Was he the long-haired guy or was he the map dude? Like... Which guy in Blair Witch was he? He's the one that gives, uh, gives her shit about losing the map. Like... Which one you lost the fucking map? Okay. Because there's one of them, there's another guy, I, one of the guys from Blair Witch was also in this movie, Unsane, and I didn't, had no idea until someone was like, yeah, that's one of the guys and truthfully, I don't think I would recognize them in anything, because no. that's sort of what I identify them from, and it's shot in such it's a way so where, yeah, I mean, shit, that's 21, 21 years. years ago. Um... Just like his father, Ansley's encounter with Victor Crowley does not go his way, as he is thrown into a tree, has his arm ripped off, has a large unidentified organ pulled from his back, and has his lower back pulled off. Um, this is the very first on-screen kill in the film. It's a pretty good way to start off your film. 
Uh, man, it's 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 good and bloody. I'm gonna give it a six out of ten because uh, it it gives you just enough to like. Okay, this is the tone of what we're going for, but it doesn't go full hilt uh, like some of the later kills. I swear to God, six out of ten. That's what that was my score too. All right. Uh, the victims of Hatchet aren't all nubile teens. Uh, we also have an older couple. First up being Richard Reilly as Jim. Now, Richard is a legendary character actor with over 400 credits to his name. He's worked a lot with uh, Adam Green over the years. He was in Chillerama. And, uh, oh, yeah. I want to say he worked with Joe Lynch on uh, uh, Nights of Bad Aston, but I might be misremembering that. Uh, was he? he may have been in Mayhem as well. I only saw Nights of Bad Aston once i don't remember no that's a movie product of studio interference because what was what could have been uh sad sad days um jim has the distinction of being the only person in hatchet to be killed by hatchet uh victor crelly hacks him clean through starting at his shoulder with a diagonal cut into two big chunks. Uh, what's your score on Nine this? Nine out of ten. Nine out of ten. It's fucking... This is when the movie's cranking up. You got the early kill to, to whet your appetite. The movie's going... Cranking up. It's going full tilt. I have my I have my assertion a little lower. I have my at a six out of ten. And that's only... It's only because, man, the scale... It, it, the kills get so much more ridiculous than that. If this kill were in any other slasher movie, it would pro- I would probably have it as a ten. But as far as the ridiculous kills that you get in, yeah, I, I I'm gonna give it a six. Give it a nine out of ten. Um, as gruesome as Jim's death was, it pales in comparison to Patrika Darbo, who plays Shannon, who is Jim's wife. Uh, when we're talking about Hatchet's kills, uh, two are bound to be at the top of anybody's list. Shannon's is the uncontested number one. Ten out of ten. That's on, my on second. Victor Crowley rips off her fucking jaw. And with added effect, there is that awesome 360 shot. Ten out of yeah, ten. Yeah, that was my second ten out of ten. I, I love this. And what pains me about this, uh, because uh, I had actually written a script with a shout out to Lionel Green, he may actually uh, listen to this podcast. Uh, give him full credit. He and I, about a decade ago or more, wrote a script. Uh, we started writing this script when Grindhouse came out. We went to the midnight showing of it. We had a great time. I was like, man, we both love horror. Let's let's write a script. And so we came up with this this idea called Blood Dawn. Now there was a character, and I'm offhand, I can't remember the character's name, but his gimmick was that he was going to be eating in every fucking scene you saw him. And the the killer of this was going to be kind of like a, a David Cronenberg body horror kind of oh, situation. Cool. It was going to have all these undertones about like uh, 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 an anti-drug kind of message, but that's getting off track. So this person had taken these uh, expired drugs and they made them into like a goopy tar man kind of thing. And their only motivation was to get more of these drugs. So the this this fat kid who's always eating um, in this scene, he kind of shows up in the middle. Is like, hey, what's going on? And he's got one hand, he's got a glass of milk, and the other one he's got he's got a cookie. So he starts to eat the cookie, and this monster rips off his jaw. And that was I thought this was going to be like the coolest moment of the movie, 
because like as he's like dying, he kind of goes into shock and like his hand raises up and pours the milk into, cool. into his mean, open wound. And I was so happy that we there's a unique thing I've never seen it in a movie. And then I saw Hatchet and I was like, you motherfucker, <laughs> you beat me to the punch. And not only did they do a better kill, they did the opposite. The, 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 three, the, three, the three fucking 60. I, I thought that was just going to be like the greatest kill. But uh, credit where credit is due, 10 out of 10, knocked it out of the fucking park. I, one of my favorite kills in a slasher again, movie it's, ever. it's it's right when the shit's going down in the horror movie. You've had enough time with establishing characters. Shit's getting real. You get the husband hacked and had. That's why, again, 9 out of 10, it's also tone and ah! And then the 10 out of 10. Alright, up next we have Joel Murray as Doug Shapiro of the uh, Bayou Beavers, <laughs> which is a ripoff of Girls Gone Wild. We'll talk a little bit uh, about uh, Bayou Beavers and Girls Gone Wild when we get to our general trivia section. Um, did you know that Joel Murray is the brother of Bill Murray, who is in Ghostbusters? You just got busted! I was letting you have that one too, because yes, I did. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad you knew it, because that, oh, yeah. come on, that's the most obvious connection there. Uh, fun little fact about Joel uh, on set, he was uh, not cranky, is probably not the right word, but he, he was always kind of disheartened by, they have really great golf courses where they filmed, and he's <laughs> like, hey, can I you know, kind of sneak away and go uh, play you know, nine rounds of, or holes of golf, and no, we're getting the, you know, we're losing daylight, going to shoot these scenes, so uh, all the Murray brothers big into golf. It helped them with their vices, much like it did Alice Cooper. So um, more he, power to him. That's actually him. like I think how I knew him because they had that short-lived show where they all play go yes. play golf, and that's how I knew. Um, let's okay. He's, let's he's no he's no that. Brian Doyle Murray, but, no. but we uh, but we do we do. He's love still him. a Murray. Doug's death is swift, uh, but it's still fairly memorable. Uh, Victor Crowley twists his head entirely backwards till it snaps off, only hanging on by a thin piece of flesh all the while with the wounds spurting at an enormous amount of blood i yet again in any other horror movie this would be yeah. a solid uh, eight nine maybe even a ten but i'm gonna give it a six six uh then of course we have our bayou beaver duo <laughs> the first of which being mercedes McNabb, who plays the the ditzy blonde named mitzi who is looking to advance her career by showing off the tna and she fell for it 30 times. <laughs> That's one of my bad. I think this is the third time I fell for that. Yeah, she uh, she plays the ditzy blonde really, really well. But I was interested to find out. Um, she's really known, probably better known, for another movie playing a completely different type of character. She plays Wednesday Adams' rival in Adams' Family Value. She's the little, She's the little blonde girl oh my God. when they're at camp. Yeah, the wow. little the little bitch. I'm glad she got ripped apart. I mean, now. she's no, yeah, she's, she's great. She's stupid in this movie, but she's, she's really a mean bitch she, in that. She's really likable, but in Adam's Family Values, man, she's a complete bitch. So uh, credit where credit is due. She's yeah, she's, she's very actress. very actress. Uh, Mitzi gets off pretty easily as her death is off screen, but as I discussed earlier, her course uh, torso does come into play and does contribute to a great moment as it gets chucked at Ben in Victor Crowley's shed. I uh, gotta do it. My score one out of ten. I, I'm gonna give this one uh, a three out of ten because it is off screen, but I love it when the head comes in and then the fucking torso. Yeah. It's used to affect. Uh, so I'm gonna give it a three. 
I, I'll I'll put an asterisk on mine, but I'm still giving it a one because it was off screen, and I'm sure this is a low budget movie, and shooting a couple more death scenes would have added exponentially to the budget, but that's what we want to see in a slasher movie. In a balls out slasher movie like this, like I want to see everybody's death in gory detail. Well, they 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 heard you. They went on. The, we'll and, get to and, them in hatch, in Hatchet too. Yeah, everybody, everybody gets it. I won't say it because we're we're gonna hit it eventually. But Hatchet Two has my favorite all time slasher movie kill ever. Okay, well, uh, Brandon knows what it is. I, but well, nobody it, else it's, will. It's uh, it's it's up there for me as well. And we'll definitely get to it. Uh, probably not this year. Maybe twenty twenty one. Stay tuned, Ran Army. Uh, our next victim. Last up, we have another bare breasted aspiring thespian. Uh, jo- but she didn't go to NYU. <laughs> G- uh, Jolie Fiore as Jenna. Uh, Jenna, in the eyes of many fans, uh, suffers from the uh, the most incredible death in Hatchet when Victor Crowley takes a gas powered belt sander to her very pretty face. My score: ten out of ten. Nine out of ten. It's fucked up. It's horrible. There's I don't know why. But there's something, like, I don't want to say this, but I'm going to have to use this phrasing. It's a little ridiculous. Okay. And they almost removed this kill from the shooting. Because in the script, gas-powered belt sander. Um, They don't exist. But the prop guy assured us, like, listen, if I can build this with real it's things. It's a great kill. If I, can, if I can build this with real things, will you put this in the movie? And Adam agreed to it. He built a actual working gas-powered belt sander. You have to give them credit. I'll give them an amazing credit because I am not mechanically inclined at all. I'm not a fix-it-to guy. I didn't know those didn't exist. No. It didn't make sense to me that they existed. I'm like, it's just a fucking sander. But 9 out of 10, it's horrible. And she, again, she suffers. She's crawling away and then she gets that and impaled on the fucking... The reason I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10 is like, that's something you're never going to forget. That's true. A belt center to the face. I'm, I'm going to give it a 9.5. I, I, I I'm, not, I'm not trying to sway your vote. No. But nine. I'm just saying, that's the reason I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. I get it. Oh yeah, that's fucking because great. Because if I forgot everything about that movie, I would never forget this. Belt that and the head rip. I mean, yeah. I, true. That's, they're my two 10 out of 10s. Um, although rare in a slasher film, we do have a few survivors in our additional cast. Um, first up, we have Tony Todd as Reverend Zombie. I'm not going to do Tony's rundown. Uh, 2021, mark your calendars. We will be doing Candyman. Fuck yeah. And um, Mick Strong will be back on that episode. He did the production design. And that's going <coughs> to completely different uh, than the things we've talked about him with before. You know, the sort of the nightmarish stuff from Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw Master. Urban decay, graffiti, a lot of interesting sets in Candyman. But uh, Tony Todd, if you're listening, I know you're not. Yeah. Got to get you on that podcast, my friend. I actually met Tony Todd. He's a really, really nice guy. Um, uh, very, very politically minded. Um, so I fuck I, rich white people. Come on, Tony Todd. I, I would, I'd love to be able to interview him to get his take on you know the mindset of a Candyman from like '92 as opposed to like Candyman like now. Let's well, see. One, one of the good things about doing it next year is hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to see the new one and that's, add, that's, add that's true. That's true. 
Um, uh, Tony Todd re- returns to Hatchet 2 with a much bigger role when you find out he has uh, a big connection to um, Victor Crowley. Victor Crowley. And we didn't really touch on this before, but you find out that uh, Mary Beth's father has a connection to uh, Victor Crowley as well, and then uh, Mary Beth's uh, uncle is going to play, played by the great uh, Tom Holland, uh, is going to play a part in part two, so uh, the, the Victor Crowley mythos grows, and uh, it's very satisfying, uh, due in part to the great performance by Tony Todd. Um, as uh, Jack Cracker, the crazy Susan Hermit who drinks his own piss, long... <laughs> Gone but never forgotten, John Carl Beekler, who succumbed to cancer yeah. fairly recently. Um, he's very small role in this movie, but you want to talk about fucking memorable. Like, this movie starts out with, like, a weird left turn. It's like, what the fuck is... Why is he drinking his own piss? Oh, I fucking love it. Yeah, I don't know if that was in the script or that was something he uh, he suggested. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, I don't know. But um, uh, he uh, he also did uh, a lot of the special effects for the movie, and uh, this is one of the the last big things you know he did. And I want to say he maybe did part two. I might be misremembering. I know he gets a great kill in part two. Oh, His death scene's yeah, fucking great. He does. He does. But uh, you know, we, we he gets brought up a lot in the podcast, just kind of off, offhand, interconnected with other other people involved with any particular movie. But I've never heard anybody say anything negative about the guy, and it's just so sad that uh, they had to succumb to cancer in the, in the way he did because he he had that GoFundMe campaign, and it was kind of looking up like he was going to be able to be able to pay for the. Uh, the treatments and everything, and then just you know, like that. He, American healthcare system is broken. Uh, That's all p- the p- political stuff I'll get into. This is a popcorn movie. Yeah. Um. R.I.P. John Carl Beekler. R.I.P. Uh, your, your your work will be remembered uh, for for quite a while. Best looking, Jason. I uh, you 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 might be correct. I will make. I know. I, there's I'm gonna, arguments. Bro. I'm going to make one one slight caveat. With the mask on, I think he's the best looking Jason. I'm not really crazy about how Jason looks with the really? mask Really? Because I'm, I'm both. I, I, Jason in Part 7, no mask, I fucking love. I just think, I don't know. He looks a little... Uh, it's cartoonish, I think. He looks a little buck-toothed and like, woo! <laughs> for my, for my life. I get that, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, the attention to detail. He's a very talented guy, and he will be sorely missed. Um, uh, last, but certainly not least... Uh, filling the role as young Victor Crowley, we have Riley Vanderbilt. Uh, when makeup effects artist John Carl Beekler needed a model to test the latex prosthetics on, Riley was the volunteer. Now, she was attached to the hip to director Adam Green because they were either dating or engaged at that point. Um, because the makeup effects had already been molded to her face and she was small enough for the role, she ended up getting the role. Now, I'm sure that's a part nepotism and part convenience, but either way, for what she accomplishes, I, if you if you had never told me that was a girl playing the role, yeah, I would have never known. So, great combination of both the acting front and the great job at making us believe that you could be a man. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I hear Brandon's now just playing. That's exactly how I meant it too. <laughs> um, like I like I pointed out, her and Adam were together, and they would end up marrying in 2010, but they would re- uh, divorce. Uh, 
roughly four years later. Um, one of the continual things, I don't want to call Adam whiny. Uh, it could probably come off that way to people. I'm going to say he comes off very human. Um, because it, whether you've heard him on this podcast or, you know, on, uh, you know, the commentary tracks for movies and stuff, he's very honest about things. So when he kind of talks about, you know, the struggles and, you know, being single after being married so long, like it, it's very, it, may, it just makes me like him even more because he can easily keep that stuff to himself. And probably some people may prefer people to do that, but I don't know. It just makes me, it makes me appreciate him more as a flesh and blood human being rather than like this directing idol that, you know, is yeah. sort of like an unattainable, like, oh, be my friend kind of thing. I don't know. It just humanizes him for me in... In a three-dimensional kind of way. I understand that. Sure. So, uh, after all this talk of blood and guts, I think I could use a drink. So, let's drink it in, man. Hatchet edition. I want all of you out there in the rant army, if you would like to play along, watch Hatchet, and you're going to take a shot whenever an arm is ripped off a person. That in of itself is going to get you, you got a drunk. Yeah, buzz, yeah. Well, I mean, just if you, if that's well, if the you go individual arms, if you, yeah, but if you oh. watch the movie by itself and did none of these other things, you're going to get drunk just on that one thing through the course of the movie, not immediately, but you're going to get a good, nice buzz. Amateurs will get drunk. Okay, good point. <laughs> Uh, I want you to take a shot whenever Doug films Misty or Jenna for Bayou Beavers. Yeah. Double shot when there's boobs. Yeah. So you're that's another you're gonna yeah. be slosh drunk pretty quickly. Take a shot whenever a character vomits. Uh, there's a lot more vomiting in this movie than uh, anyone would would think. So yet again, you're gonna get uh, pretty sloshed. Take a shot whenever Sean's accent changes. Drunk. Yeah, you <laughs> fucked up now. Uh, take a shot whenever Marcus does something cowardly, like climbing up in the tree or, uh, hey, cowardly or smart. Okay. That's all I'm saying. You know, if he had stayed up in that tree, Victor probably would have thrown something at Victor's well, pretty creative when it comes to this, but he, but he, but he could have been distracted for, you he know, could have got away with it till dawn. You're yeah, right. So survive the night. Uh, take a shot whenever there is a cameo from a horror legend. I think if you take into all these things, you're going to have. Either alcohol poisoning or the best buzz of your life. Yeah, again, if you if you're if you're not a hardcore drinker like the professionals here <laughs> at the Black Lodge, maybe start off with like a fireball beer or something like that. Don't go straight for the hundred proof rock gut that we are fueled by, <laughs> or you could have a bad time. For those of you out there who drink your uh, take your drinking seriously and would like an extra special hatchet inspired cocktail to wet your whistle. We have for you Victor Crowley's Swamp Water. So your ingredients, you're going to need 15 ounces of green chartreuse liqueur, which is the fancy way of, you know, mm, that's, that's so fancy. So fancy. Uh, four ounces of fresh pressed pineapple juice. However, however, if you're a broke ass regular uh, motherfucker like you and I, uh, just regular pineapple juice will suffice. Uh, five ounces uh, or 0. 0.5. Uh, no, wait a minute. I don't know if I'm 0. 0.5 or 5. I'm going to say five ounces. I, I put 0.5 here, but I think that's a mistake. Uh, five ounces of fresh squeezed lime juice. The same thing. If you're broke, just use a cheap ship. Okay. You're going to need a shaker. Fill it with ice. Pour all your ingredients in it inside. Uh, 
Uh, you need a Collins glass, which is a very specific type. But I mean, yet again, like it'll work in a regular one. But there's there's dynamics to the way uh, glass is made that'll make the uh, uh, the way the air filter in it when you're tasting it. That's if you're a drunk I use like a to go cup from Hardee's. <laughs> I got three days ago. If you're a drunk like like Fat Tony and I, anything will do. Um, Fill it with ice, and you're going to strain the contents uh, from the shaker into the glass. Garnish with lime wedge and a sprig of mint. Enjoy your delicious concoction inspired by Hatchet, Victor Crowley's Swamp Water. Um, do I think this would get me drunk? Probably not, but it does sound pretty fucking good. Sounds tasty. Um, as always... It's a nice chaser. Nice chaser. Per- perfect, perfect, yeah. Uh, as always, drink like a champ, have a good time, but drink responsibly, and never... Drink and drive. Drunk Tony will kick your ass. <laughs> All right. We've got uh, quite a bit of uh, movie trivia. Let's shoot through that, and then we'll move on to our fan questions. Uh, just prior to the recording of the audio commentary track for Hatchet, there had been a power outage, like like block-wide, like complete power outage. Now, they were on an incredibly tight uh, time, time frame, and cinematographer Will Barrett being the kind of MacGyver of the scenario, he used a power inverter and hooked up uh, the recording equipment to his car just to be able to record the commentary track to stay on deadline. Ironically, after spending hours hooking everything up, the power came back on almost immediately after they started recording. (laughs) Uh, There's an old adage, anything that can go wrong will, and uh, it it did, but uh, I highly recommend the commentary track. Uh, Lots of uh, bits of information that we didn't highlight in our retrospective here, but a lot of funny stories on set and just a lot of uh, character stuff that uh, maybe doesn't come across uh, in the finished product. Uh, Director Adam Green loosely based the character of Ben on himself. Now, me knowing a lot of the ins and outs about Adam being such a big fan, it's pretty evident, but I didn't realize that at the time. Because him in the actual movie does the smart thing and stays with the booze and boobs. Yeah, that's true. He does have a cameo, uh, as does there's there's another character, a shirtless drunk guy, who uh, is uh, it's a kind of a back uh, background character that's been in several oh. several short films and uh, stuff. Uh, Arioscope uh, YouTube channel, go check it out. Uh, the original cut of the film uh, had Patrika Darbo's character Shannon written to be a racist. However, uh, those scenes were deleted in the editing process in an effort to make all the characters more likable, thus increasing the emotional impact of their eventual demise. One of uh, the things we talked about in our last podcast for the people under the stairs was the unglamorized way that the violence was shot to make you empathize with the characters a little more. Because of the hyper-reality of the the way and just the overabundance of blood, it is sort of hurts some of the characters. So I, I think that that was probably a wise decision because it makes her a little more likable that way when she gets killed, you're not rooting for it. Or, or, do, yeah. you, or do you disagree with me? Would it no, I agree that, especially in the like the first movie of a franchise, even though they might not have known it would be a franchise, I still think they did because of the ending that just ends. Uh, yeah, you want... You just... Have fun with the kills. You don't need you don't need a, a bad guy to root to die like you get in, in some of the follow ups. You know, one of my favorite slasher movies and big surprise is a Friday Thirteenth movie. Um, Friday Thirteenth, the final chapter. None 
of those characters are bad. No, you're right. That's they're, actually they're all really likable characters, and then when they get killed, you feel bad for them. Whereas, like Friday Thirteenth Part Seven, which I also love, you have uh, yeah, Melissa, and you're like, God, I want that bitch to get killed. So they both can be satisfying. Um, I and and I'll leave this up to the the listening audience at home. I don't know that necessarily her being uh, pity kill, you pitying her because she gets killed or wanting her to get killed. I don't know the pros and cons. I could really go either way. As long as she fucking dies. Exactly. (laughs) Um, The original intent for uh, Joel Murray's character was he was actually going to be shooting for Girls Going Wild, like in the actual video series. Because you got to think, like during that time, there was still constantly on uh, infomercials like late at night and I remember when I was in high school like I would stay up late to watch uh, E uh, for the Howard Stern show and it was like every commercial break oh yeah and um, this is a little past the the point of it being relevant because everybody's got internet by this point or most people have internet so you can go and see you know fucking everything horrible horrible uh, inside and out uh, porn you know of, of any you know, All way shape flavors. or form. Uh, so it doesn't really. If this had been made a couple of years earlier, it probably would have been a lot more topical. Yeah. But the funny thing is, like, uh, Girls Gone Wild denied them uh, the opportunity to use them in the film because of the controversial, quote unquote, nature of Hatchet. So class, they they were a classy operation. They, they, you, you pay ran you, by a fucking rapist. Oh <laughs> yeah. What is what is his fucking name? I can't. Oh, I'm not even uh, trying to. Remember. Uh, Joe Francis. Oh my God! Yeah. Uh, I the reason I know this. I actually watched a documentary about this not long ago. How he a lot of those girls were were paid to like do this stuff uh, initially, and then when like they couldn't find people to do it, they just hired you know porn stars and and uh, one of the girls ended up being like you know underage and like it was a whole ordeal. Yeah, Joe Francis is a fucking piece of shit. So I'm kind of glad that Girls Gone Wild isn't uh, utilized. Well, a a thing and B isn't in this movie. And I have to say, Bayou Beavers is a hundred percent name. name. Hell yeah, way better name. I, I in fact I'm bummed that Bayou Beavers hasn't been a, an actual porn thing. Uh, I think uh, they need to like branch off the studio and have a porn subject. <laughs> just do just for one make Bayou Beavers one one movie. I think they should have shot B-roll and uh, made a made a uh, thirty minute special for the DVD. Yeah, Bayou Beavers. That would have been great. That would have been. That would have. I, I added content. You know, that's what makes the DVD and Blu-ray format so great. Is uh, extra content. Um, uh, speaking of, of uh, content, when uh, they were filming, they they had to keep the the set hidden from the public and from unions because it was a non-union. Job so Hatchet was filmed under the title "quote unquote" Love Rodeo, <laughs> which sounds like something hot. from uh, Bayou Beavers. Um, uh, uh, interesting. Also, Hatchet was also the last production to shoot in Louisiana before Hurricane Katrina hit. Damn. Now a lot of the stuff uh, wasn't shot in Louisiana. A lot of the stuff where they're on Bourbon Street. I mean, that's that's yeah. obvious. But a lot of stuff in the swamp was actually shot in Sable Ranch, which is, I think, in California. Um, a lot of fucking movies. In, in fact, going back to Friday the 13th, uh, a lot of, you know, a couple of them shot yeah. in Sable Ranch. So that's just uh, your stock filming locations. It's kind of a cool lineage to have, you know, shooting in the same place. But uh, 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 it wasn't all shot in Louisiana. But the 
last production there before the horrible, horrible Hurricane Katrina. Love Rodeo sounds like a porno that would star you and they... I'm I sorry, think it, it just does. As long as we're not working together. I'm oh no, it just sounds like a movie. I'm not saying I want to see it. It sounds like a movie where it's just you and me. No, thank you. The chick will never, she's late and we're bored. I don't think I've ever been that bored. No, nor I've do I, never been that bored. Nor do I hope to ever become that bored. I'm just saying that. I love that's you, man. The, I love you, man. I love man. you. I don't want I'll to take a bullet tips. for you. Not a wiener. Yeah. Okay, good. Not that work. there's anything wrong with that. You, if you want to blow dogs, I don't give a fuck. That doesn't affect me, but my wiener, P and V only. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, the ringtone on Misty's cell phone is, do you know? No. It's I Don't Want to Wait by Paula Cole, which was uh, the Dawson's Creek oh, uh, yeah. theme song. I never saw one episode of that show growing up. It's the only thing... Everybody's like, I've never seen an episode of this, and I'm proud of it. That's I and I always dog them on that. Created by Kevin Williams, so he wrote yeah. that fucking movie you love so much. I'm sorry, Scream's amazing. Um, shout out to Chris McPherson. Um, Chris McPherson actually uh, was in an episode of uh, of uh, fuck that show. Dawson, just yeah, that. Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Chris McPherson is the uh, owner and. Uh, star of uh, sweet fanny adams and uh, oh. sad news we just found out that uh, after 40 something years this will be their final season uh, gatlinburg's longest gatlinburg tennessee uh, gatlinburg's longest running show uh, yeah. legacy uh, multi-generational and uh, i highly suggest if you are in the area and you have a chance please go see it while you have the chance you will not regret it and tell them the ransom of black lodge podcast sent you uh, the t-shirt that Ben wears with the smiley face logo on it, that's from Newberry Comics. Newberry Comics is a New England chain that sells CDs, DVDs, and comic books. Adam Green grew up in Massachusetts, and he would routinely buy horror movies and action figures from there. So that's just a, that's a cool shout a, out. nice little uh, free uh, advertising, because they, they hooked him up with a lot of deals back in the day. And he's he's nothing if not a uh, you know, loyal. loyal person, or at least from my viewpoint, he appears to be that way. Um, if you were to watch the first three Hatchet movies in a row, and you omitted uh, the ending and opening credits of uh, Part 2 and the beginning credits of Part 3, you could stitch them together and make one mega movie, and aside from the replacement of Tamara Feldman to Daniel Harris, it's pretty fucking seamless. I mean, there's some little yeah. changes in the makeup, but... Uh, Tremendous. So those of you that make super cuts out there, you know these fans get on this shit. I, I'm sure somebody has done yeah. it, but uh, please, please let us know at Rance Black Lodge if you got this available. I would really, really enjoy seeing it. Okay, so we have a couple of fan questions. We'll knock these out and call it a day. First up, this comes from Rob Layton. Did you know that a hatchet, per definition, is a small axe with a single bit or blade? Thus, the weapon used in the film is not actually a hatchet. I did know that, but, you know. Um, thanks for ruining the illusion, God. you prick. No, uh, technically, Rob, you are correct. <coughs> but, colloquially, to a someone in Louisiana, they're probably going to call it a hatchet. So, I don't think that's a, a make-or-break kind of... I can never watch the movie again. I'm fucking done with this podcast. Get the Bye. fuck out of my house! <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, that's 
no. minutia. It's kind of like in, in Star Wars, them talking about you know making the, the Kessel Run and Parsecs, which is a, a distance rather than a time, and they went to great lengths in the shitty Han Solo movie to justify that. Fuck Disney Star Wars. I'm sorry, Rogue One's the best Star Wars movie ever. No, it's not the best Star Wars movie ever. It's the best (laughs) Disney Star Wars movie. Okay, our next question comes from John Orby, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's O-R-B-I. Would you have preferred a more straightforward slasher movie version of Hatchet? I think I hated Hatchet the first time I saw it. The comedy just didn't appeal to me, but now uh, I think it's a minor masterpiece, especially because of its gore effects. Uh, we kind of touched on this a little earlier. Uh, Give me the humor. Just I, actually speaking of a movie Brandon the, the talked about and I just recently saw. I like horror with comedy sometimes. Scare Package on Shudder. Uh, dude, Great fucking Scare movie. Package, instant fucking yeah. classic. It, it, like, like you know, I, I like my serious horror movies. I like my hereditaries. I like my exorcist. But on that same to- side, I like my dumb shit. I like my... Uh, uh, Sleepaway Camp 3s and fucking uh, Chillaramas. You know, give me that shit. I, I, here's the thing. What does it matter as long as it's good? Yeah, exactly. Like, if this movie were bad because it had bad comedy, then yeah, obviously the answer would be it would have been better as a straight horror movie. But if it's funny, and I know comedy is subjective, but I think most of the comedy in this, in this film works. It lands. So... I, I think it's perfect the way it is and unique, you know, in contrast to the things that came before it. Not that there there weren't horror comedies before, yeah. but I can't think of a lot of slasher horror comedies that were There was good. something I rented way back in the day. Something Unmasked Part 35. Unmasked Part 25. Part 25, yes. yeah. I like, I had a soft spot for that when I was a kid, but that's about it on the slasher comedies. That's that's a very now. There's a lot of them. Yeah, that that was sort of an anomaly back then. Smart direction to take it in, but uh, pro- probably. Be- I rented it thinking I was so young. I rented it thinking it was a straight horror movie. I mean, I quickly realized it was a comedy. But I'm like, well, th- yeah, but also that's probably a movie that like you could put on and like mom and dad are not gonna see the the genius of it. That's a specific. Only horror movie fans kind of movie where yeah. I think you could show Hatchet to like somebody that's sort of like on the fence whether or not they like slasher movies and they could probably enjoy it for what yeah. it is. Okay, our next question comes from Brian McKinney, and this is a fun one. Fuck, Mary, kill, Mary Beth, Misty, Jenna. Fuck, or Mary, Mary Beth. What are the two other girls' names? Uh, Misty is the blonde, Misty. and Jenna is the one with dark hair. <sighs> Fuck Misty, kill Jenna. Okay. Um, <sighs> and that's that. If if Mary Beth was Daniel Harris, oh, I, I would be, I'd be fucking her. I, I mean, I you guess get to fucking marriage. Yeah, but then, but then the sex becomes boring. Like <laughs> after a while, you're just like, I was the old broad. No. Marriage, marriage, marriage should be illegal. Keep the sex fun and, and uncontract yourself. Fuck, fuck the, the construction of government yeah. contract love. Um, but in the context of this movie, I, I would kill Mary Beth because she, she. I don't think you could have a sustainable relationship with her because she's going to have mental trauma from this. Those bitches do anything. 
Just saying. <laughs> but but then again, it could turn to a point where yeah. they turn that aggression upon you in a negative and way. You're getting pegged hard, non-consensually. <laughs> I don't want to be pegged softly, let alone hard. But if you like that, that's fine. Well, I mean, teach their own, but no pegging for me. Um, I would marry Misty, uh, and uh, no, no fuck. I would marry Jenna and would fuck Misty. Jenna on the bus scene, she has like uh, she starts keep uh, keep scratching her crotch. She's probably like some. She got those crabs. Yeah. So no, no, thank you. I can. So yeah, not really a. Much of a blonde guy, but uh, I, I go nice. I, I mean, go she's to not town. a bitch. Yeah, she's Jenna's she, a little bit of a bitch. Yeah, lovable enough. I mean, you kind of expect that in a in your traditional uh, Dumb sitcom trope. I was gonna say in the sitcom kind of way of like a uh, you know bitchy wife. So that would be my answer. Uh, next question comes from Stank Dick Eddie. When they made the first movie, do you think they ever envisioned Hatchet becoming a franchise? You hit the nail on the head with this earlier. It ends. It stops. It stops. There was obviously an idea for a for a sequel. In fact, in the commentary, Adam Green talks about, uh, well, this is what we're going to do in the sequel. We're going to add more onto the mythology. So, like, he already had the framework in his mind. And I have to imagine, like, if I were in the same position, I had this character since growing up, you're not planning on making just one movie. Friday the 13th had eight sequels, you know, in the or uh, um, eight movies in in the in the eighties. You want one every couple of years. That's just that's the that's what they love. Exactly. That's what they want to emulate. And even if it failed, he still got to trade. You know, he shot. He didn't make the movie thinking, okay, I better play it safe if I fail. He's like, nope, the movie just stops. They shoot for the moon, and they uh, you still reach the stars they, 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 while they, you live, laugh, and love. Alright, our next couple of questions come from the incomparable Titty Flippin' Travis. Do you think the real reason Victor is so upset is because he wasn't asked to be in Bayou Beavers? Uh, he couldn't, no, he couldn't uh, score a copy of Bayou Beavers. There's, yeah, everything runs on gas on, uh, uh, you know, Honey Island Swamp, so there's no electricity out there. So unless he has a, a gas-powered VCR... He's all horned up. If somebody would have thrown a flashlight at him... Problem solved. His head kind of looks like a flashlight. <laughs> it does. <laughs> All right, this next question comes from uh, Titty Flip and Travis, and we'll, this will close us out. Do you think Victor jerks off with the tears he cries for his dead daddy? Probably tears in that, like, KY Mountain Dew spit. <laughs> Should have been, why would you need tears if you have KY? Ugh. Mountain Dew flavor. Knowing that it's KY and Mountain Dew, but kind of makes that seem worse for me because that just probably be disgusting. You know, some some backwoods Louisiana slut be like, Mountain Dew lube, hell yeah, I'm going down that bitch. She's down. Hatchet. That's my kind of woman. Hatchet, I'll show you my hatchet no. wound. <laughs> There's the porn parody name already. Hatchet wound. Hatchet wound. <laughs> Sex it up. <laughs> I didn't even go for that. That's. <laughs> Total credit to, to Fat Tony. All right, Ran Army. I think we spent long enough sweating our balls off in the hot-ass Honey Island Swamp, but don't fret. We'll be back August 1st for drum roll, please. Give me a drum roll. Our three-year anniversary extravaganza. In the meantime, please subscribe to the Ransom of Black Lodge podcast on one of the platforms we're available on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, iHeartRadio, and... Newly available on Pandora. We may have been available on there for quite a while, but I just now figured that out. So check us out on there if that's your uh, podcasting platform of choice. 
Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, buy a t-shirt from our web store at RantArmy.com. For Fat Tony, I'm Brandon A. Lane. Till next month, Red Army, keep marching. Have a good one.